Today, I speak with Barbara Savage, who's the founder of the Tribal Trust Foundation, which is an organization that works internationally with indigenous communities pretty much all around the world, trying to help them preserve their culture and their, their way of life. So her work is, is very close to the work I've been doing more recently with, with Sapient. And uh, yeah, she's been at it for, for a long time. She has a lot of stories, a lot of wisdom. And um, during this conversation, we actually, we had a lot of technical difficulties. So that's why I'm doing this, this little intro here, which I don't normally do. So yeah, we record on different devices, sort of things get cut out at times. Um, so this is sort of a, a patchwork reconstruction of our conversation, but I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'll find some, some interesting insights here and, uh, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Enjoy. Okay. Barbara, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to, to talk to you about your, your work, your book, your life, been you've been doing a lot of interesting things for for a long time so <laughs> it's it's still it's still a journey i promise you <laughs> but i just i would just love to hear some stories um because i know i know you have a lot of stories and, <laughs> and um i was thinking maybe uh, see what you think about this but to just focus it on on sort of different emotions you know if you have a, a like a story about fear for example i would like mm. to hear that well, the, the biggest fear I had was when I went to the Congo <clears throat> and it became a reality that I had to deal with. And my biggest fear was witchcraft hmm. because that's not part of my reality and it's not part of my culture and I know not, nothing about it. And yet I know in the Congo, there, there are some really dark people that have powerful knowledge around that. Mm -hmm. So when I was in Kinshasa, when I first arrived, I had, it took like a week before I could even get on a plane to go to the East coast of the DRC, which is a huge, I don't know if people realize how big the Congo is, but it's, it's huge. And originally I was going to come in to um, where the Mabuti live in the Uturi forest through Uganda, but thank God I listened to my advisor, um, Dr. Bob Hitchcock, uh, because he said, you know, no, you really need to get a permit um, from the government to go into the Uturi forest. So you need to go to Kinshasa, even though that is, I believe it's still the most dangerous city in the world. Um, but I, 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 I did go there. I ended up having to bribe the government for a permit, end up in Goma and volcano overflows like the, like the indigenous people had told me it was going to happen when the day I arrived. So I was like, okay, I guess I'm here at the right time. <laughs> but, but then when I, but then when I got to Goma, I realized, oh my gosh, you know, um, I feel different. And what happened was when I was in Kinshasa, I was staying in the only hotel where international people could stay. They had metal detectors when you went, you know, to get into the hotel because it was just where corporation corporate people were staying. Mm -hmm. But of course, I was the only one that walked through the metal detector. Everybody else wearing, you know, wearing guns and 
knives and all that stuff. They walked around it. It was just the most <laughs> corrupt, dangerous place. I mean, all these guys from um, Russia were there carrying no, no credit cards worked. So you had to carry cash, mm-hmm. um, which became problematic for me because there also wasn't food. So I lost 10 pounds in 10 days and my money bag would like fall off my, you know, hips. Um, <laughs> but I, while I was there, there, I knew that my life was at risk if, if I left without, um, without guard, you know, guard and inter- an interpreter. Mm-hmm. So I stayed at the hotel and I just one night, um, one early afternoon, I never went out to, even to a restaurant in the hotel, a small hotel, but it wouldn't even leave my room it, it, except for going to this one little restaurant. So I went to this one little restaurant and this really, this man just had, I could just feel he was dark mm. and I, it was daylight, but I moved away from his table. I just said, Oh, you know, I'm too close to da, da, da. Could I just sit over here? But I, he, so he was to my back, but I could just feel him. And then sure enough, I felt like a dart go in my back, like right behind, like right behind my heart, actually. Hmm. And it wasn't, it wasn't, it, I checked when I got back to my hotel room, it wasn't a dart. There was no mark on my back. It wasn't like an energetic thing Hmm. that he he zapped me with and I was able to go through my you know my trip I was able to meet with the Mabuti miraculously get out I mean I have to read my memoir to to get into the details and I only shared a fraction of what went on there it was um, really traumatic and I was scared the whole time I was there but I knew I had to go Uh, but I I definitely feared for my life 24 7 I thank God I, I practiced yoga because that was how I survived. I didn't even, if I thought about walking that I needed to walk through that a door because at each airport, I was detained as a spy. So I didn't even know if I was going to be put in jail or if I'd get on that plane, even had to run and jump on a plane, a missionary plane one time, but um, it was just very scary. But the, the scariest thing was when I got home, my husband looked at me and he just said, what happened? And it wasn't that I was, you know, I looked like I had been in a concentration camp. It was because I had just lost my passion. I mean, I risked my life to go there. And mm-hmm. I, when I got back, I had no energy to do anything to move the project forward. Mm-hmm. And it was, and so I went to see a friend of mine who was a African um, single. My, he's also a white Jewish surgeon <laughs> from South Africa, but he's been trained as um, as a Sangomo, someone who can deal with witchcraft. So I went to him in Santa Barbara. Thank goodness, you know, it was it was a, like a miracle, I guess, that he he was there. Mm-hmm. And he threw the bones and and said, "Oh my God, yes, you you've gotten attacked." And he gave me all this medicine, ritual medicine, African medicine to do baths with and to um, wear and gave me mantras to say. Um, It took six months to get rid of that, six months. And I still don't understand what, you know, how does that even happen? Um, I've since actually, unfortunately, dealt with a similar situation when I was in Namibia on this last trip. Mm. Um, and I had to go back to, to 
Dr. Coombs for more medicine and he threw the bones and again confirmed and this was a woman who doesn't want doesn't want the tribal trust to do this project. So every time I go to work on this project, um, something happens. Hmm. And so it's it's very creepy. <laughs> and it's hmm. and it does make me afraid on a certain level. But I also know that I'm more powerful. So um, I just stick with that, you know, because I'm I'm not going to let fear take over ever. Yeah. Thank you. So that, that's that's my fear story because yeah. <laughs> it's actually a current one as well. Uh oh, I lost you. Have you ever dealt yeah. with that? Can you hear me? Wait, sorry. I can't uh, hear you. Totally, are you there? Can you hear me? And it's because I just talked about that. Barbara. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. It, it, oh, no. The, I the can, energy. I can hear you sometimes. The witch. The witchcraft affects technology. Hmm. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit record here. We'll see if this works. Okay. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> yeah, so so let's let's see. Do do you have a story about wonder, about awe? <laughs> oh, um, yeah, my wonder story is about um the first time I first time I, I ever got a spiritual calling when I was in Namibia. Uh, not Namibia, I'm, when I was in, on Amelia Island and I was meditating and this, this guy came to me in meditation and I had never, I had meditated for maybe five or six years and never had any bells or whistles or just, it was just a, a black slate. And all of a sudden I'm seeing a figure and I could tell it was someone from Africa. And I, I, I didn't, but I knew nothing else. Honestly, I, I got no other information basically. So, but it was such a compelling, strong calling that I got off my pillow and I went to the phone and called um, the airline that I had the most frequent flyer miles with. And I just said, do you go to Africa? And where, where do you go? And, and she said that they go to Tanzania. I said, okay. Um, and when can I, when can I go? When's the earliest I can go? And when's the earliest I can come back? And I had to be there a month. Like they, they, she told me the date I could go, but with my miles, I, I had to stay there a month and I didn't have much cash flow at the time. So I was wondering, how am I going to do this? How am I going to survive? I've never been to Africa to begin with. And then how am I going to survive? And I realized equestrian trips are the best way to travel as far as expense. And I loved horses. So that took me to Zimbabwe. It was like, okay, so Zim is where I'm going to end up spending my time because that's where I can afford to be. And ho hopefully whoever called me, they're there. And long story short, like a very long story, very short, is that I ended up not only meeting the man that came to me in the vision, but I ended up meeting the person who he was like the medium for. So Matudo, Matudo is like the Dalai Lama for the Tibetan people. He is the God King. If anybody knows about Zimbabwe, you, you, you learn about the great Zimbabwe, which was thousands and thousands of years ago. It's almost like a pyramid type place. And Matudo, when I met him in the Ravindana wilderness on, you know, when I went horseback riding, um, he said that that was his home and he said he did call me because he wanted to, he said that it was prophecy that I would return um, 
And when I would return, it would herald a time of peace. I was like, what? I like, again, it just made no sense to me because I knew nothing about Africa. I knew nothing about the Shona people. Um, I I just had no clue. And I, I was just, I was just, I just didn't, I wondered why me? Like, what am I doing here? And yet he I'll I'll show you now that I have I'm on a cell phone as opposed to the computer, I can show you the sculpture. He I didn't need proof. I mean, I showed up and he, he proved to me just in how he graciously welcomed me that I was, um, I was meant to be there. And of course I recognized the medium who, because Matuto is again, this God King, you're not supposed to normally talk to him directly, but like we knew each other. I don't know some, it was a prior life thing. And I knew things about him that I it didn't make sense. Like, how would I know certain things? And indirectly, I ended in, I ended up introducing him to the Tibetan culture. And I got confirmation within months later upon my return back to the States that in fact, a uh, high Lama, Tibetan Lama ended up in the Ravindana wilderness to meet Matuto. And I had somehow introduced them. It was just like magic. I was in wonderment. But I'll show you the sculpture that he gave me. And it was apparently of me when I was there in the 1800s. So this is the sculpture. And I, I know it was like I cried. I knew it was of me because I, was, I, I, have, I have a ponytail. <laughs> and normally at that time when I was there visiting him, I had my hair in a ponytail up high like that with his scrunchie. And I had given it away to one of the mm. little kids um just to play with so the five hours that i was meeting him in a hut i i was holding my ponytail like this for five hours the whole time i was there and then he he comes out with that sculpture and i i was just in wonderment <laughs> so you can't see it obviously but she's holding a sculpture of a woman who looks pretty much like her and is holding her hair in a ponytail uh, just as she was so make of that what you will um, incredibly unlikely coincidence, some form of, I don't know, witchcraft, interdimensional communication, who knows? Anyway, we're going to dive pretty deep into that topic right now. Yeah, yeah it was, it was, it was, it was magical. And, and it was such confirmation for me to know that I should follow literally my dreams, like follow my, my um, intuition, follow my mind, the messages from nature or in my dream time or my intuition. Yeah. That's what leads me today. I, I follow that more than anything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess, I mean, if, if you wouldn't mind, I'd, I'd like to start sort of what seemed to me the most striking about your, your book, which was, you're almost, I don't, I don't even know what to call it. If it's spiritual shamanistic understanding of just the way you describe, you know, your, your interactions with the shamans in, in different indigenous cultures throughout the world, the way it's connected to your dream life, to intuition, to, you know, what is often called coincidence. Um, although, you know, I don't want to push too hard on that. We can say maybe there's some other factors at play, but I guess I'm, I'm just really curious if you can tell us more about sort of where that understanding comes from. Is that something you learned through your contact with shamans or is that something you've, you've always sort of felt or? 
I, I think I've always felt it as a child. I was always um, very much spending time actually by myself in nature, disappearing into the ravines and having my own. I, you know, in retrospect, I, I, I think it was a real interaction with nature spirits, but at the time in my, the culture in the U S um, I would, it was not, you'd be shamed to say that you were hanging out with fairies and stuff. So I really shut that down yeah. and, and just enjoyed um, nature through sports, you know, horseback riding, things like that. Mm-hmm. I honestly um, have never didn't had, had no real um, desire to pursue any, any particular interests in shamanism or even indigenous cultures. It, mm-hmm. It's just part of my life journey. And part of my life purpose, I think is to awaken my consciousness to that and share the, the steps you know, along the way mm-hmm. to help other people become more aware of their, their sense of nature, because we are all nature. And it's just about waking up to the interconnectedness of life. Mm-hmm. And then um, I really feel that when we do that, not only will we be solving a lot of problems as far as um people suffering from depression and feeling alone. I mean, the high suicide rate, COVID, you know, interestingly took us all into ourselves. Um, I actually had no problem, you know, being alone. Mm-hmm. It, I, I actually enjoyed it to a certain degree, not the the fear base of, of a pandemic and, and the loss of life, certainly. But, but I think spending time alone in nature is the medicine. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that is something that I've always been um, gifted with knowing, hence my, my love of animals and, and outdoor sports and things like that. Mm-hmm. The, the shamanic piece, as you read in my memoir, came um, pretty much unexpectedly. <laughs> in every situation i'm always sort of surprised um and yet i also recognize that it's a it's a gift i think it came from from having some concussions to be honest i had one when i was six years old and again later on in life and i think that just some some crack let some light in and and um i guess i'm easier for these people who have the skill set, um, the ancient knowledge, how to make these connections on another realm. I totally don't understand it, but I also don't understand how planes fly in the air or how our cell phone works. Yeah. It's, it's technology, you know, it's, hmm. um, but I, I, I think that what, what's unusual certainly is, uh, is that I, I, I take it, I, I respond. I take these, these spiritual, connections seriously and know that the people who have connected with me, they don't have electricity, they don't have cell phones, you know, so Mm -hmm. this is the ancient way of connecting with people and for communication for survival. And and we've, we've, we're losing that with the death of every indigenous elder, the Mm -hmm. Mabudi, for example, the I've heard from from pygmies themselves saying that oh the, the old ones the elders knew knew how to do that 
um, I don't even know what you want to, I don't know the languaging, what you want to call, but when basically they materialize, you know, in front of you, Mm. they, that was common among the shamans in, in the Congo. And now the youth, I don't know if anybody, if that technology is being passed on or not. Mm -hmm. And the focus of the tribal trust right now, and, and I'm very, um, very much, invested personally invested and in seeing the San Bushman with their trance dance healing technology having that being transferred to the youth that knowledge or we're going to lose that and, and these these technologies um if you want to call them shamanistic you know rituals but they're more than that you know they're they're more than that and and I'm not an anthropologist I'm not you know, an expert in any of this. I just respond to the requests of indigenous peoples. Wow. I mean, so so much uh, in that, um, so much to explore. I guess for me, when you say, for for example, with the Mobuti, they can materialize somewhere. Do you understand that literally in in physical terms? Like like physically moving from one to another? Yeah. Okay. Wow. So what is that? What is that like? That's... Oh, it, well, interestingly, um, I would in like when you're talking to me now and we and and you said, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, uh, somebody in the Congo and the DRC showing up in my house. Mm-hmm. And this was in California. I would I would normally you would think I'd like freak out and be mm-hmm. nervous or or scared or or some reaction. But actually, it was intriguing. I just couldn't believe that. And it, and it was coming from love. Like I felt the, I wasn't afraid because I was feeling an emotion of, of wanting this, this person wanting to really connect with me and they had a message for me and I just wanted to receive it. Mm-hmm. So I was, I wasn't caught up in anything other than that. And then, I, but then I, I was touching my eyes. Like, am I really I'm really seeing this. Wow. And since I don't speak um, really any languages fluently other than English, I certainly didn't understand the Mabuti language. So through pantomime, you know, he was able to, that's why it was important that he physically, I guess, you know, showed up. And, and I guess it was more than a lucid dream. Mm. You know, I, I can wake up in my dreams mm-hmm. and pay attention to messages that way. You know, it, it was like he materialized. And, and yet it was, but he materialized, but, but then it was also through animation that he was able to show me, like to communicate where he was, what, what, why he showed up, what the message was and what I needed to do. So again, I am still not understanding exactly how he did that or what realm that was in, what, I guess we're all multidimensional is all I can imagine. And that he just showed up in some dimension that I was receptive to because how does someone materialize? And then their, their body going to a volcano is what he showed me. Hmm. Um, So that doesn't make sense if it's in, you know, if it's in my house. (laughs) So I really, there's still, it's still a huge mystery to me, Mm -hmm. but, but I feel the the magnitude of uh of what we will lose if those indigenous people who know how to communicate like that 
um, are not able to transfer their knowledge to the future generations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One one tradition that I've spent quite a bit of time investigating is is in Tibet, the Tumo tradition. And there's some really great books from a French woman, Alexandra David Neal. She was there for I think 14 years. A large part wow. of the time, she was disguised as a man because you know, that as a woman, she wasn't allowed access to a lot of different places. Um, but she eventually, you know made lots of friends and contacts. And she wrote a whole series of books about all their different spiritual traditions. And um, when she talks about the, the Tumo tradition, she says there's three major branches of it. One was cold exposure. One was incredibly long distance running. And the other was telepathic communication. Mm. Right? And she was writing these books, I think it was the late 1800s, early 1900s when they were published. And everyone just said, you know, you're crazy. Like there's no way, you know? And, and the story she told of cold exposure, for example, were, you know, um, there's an, an order of monks in order to, to enter in, you'd have to spend an entire year outdoors. You weren't allowed to wear anything other than the toga. Uh, you weren't allowed to go, uh, to wear anything. Yeah. Other than toga, you weren't allowed to, to get next to a fire or I think eat cooked food either. Very, very extreme. This is just to enter into the order. Right. And then there's all these different wow. crazy tests. And, you know, according to medical knowledge at the time, that was physically impossible. And, you know, there's just no way. In subsequent years, we've discovered that it is in fact possible and, and people do that. I do not, not that extreme, but, but, you know, some, some version of that. Um, I've seen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and the same thing with the, the long distance running, you know, talking about people running for days on end, barely sleeping, uh, even, you know, 10 years ago, people would have said that's physically impossible. And now people do it on a regular basis, you know, and there's, you know, international competitions where people sleep, you know, maybe 20 minutes in three days and just run the entire time. You know, and so those two have definitely been been verified as far as the um, telepathic communication goes. That's there's a lot more controversy around there because exactly what you're saying it puts so much pressure on our understanding of what is reality, uh, what is true, how do we even you know go about figuring out what is true. It's it's just it puts a lot of pressure on the the classical uh, sort of understanding of physics and, and chemistry and all of that. So it's, it's hard for a lot of people to accept myself included. I'm, I consider myself agnostic in these matters. Um, but I think it's, it's really interesting just to note that, I mean, she, she, the same way uh, you're talking about it now, I mean, she just received messages from people and knew when someone was coming and, you know, received invitations to go to, to one city or to another city. And for her, it was just, you know, it's the way things work, you know? And, um, to me, it's just it's just really interesting to put it in that context of the other things because a hundred years ago, all three of those things seemed equally crazy, and now it's like we know for a fact at least two of them are definitely true. And the third one is like, well, well, maybe, you know. That's I think it's, no, it's more I, interesting I as an open question. It is, and and again, I think that you, I mean, you referenced the Tibetan culture. I believe that I'll, that's one of the main reasons why I'm so passionate about helping to preserve culture, particularly mm -hmm. indigenous cultures, because there you have thousands and thousands of years of knowledge from experience. Yeah. And it's been passed on for a reason. And I and that's where the treasure lies, you know, within these ancient cultures, they 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 still remember. Yeah. And I think we can be awakened to that. And you've your proof, you know, that that through doing it, you can experience that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I, I guess for 
for someone who's skeptical hearing this and saying, okay, wait a minute. So we've got, you know, global warming, we've got international warfare, uh, you know, oligarchies running the world, et cetera, et cetera. How is a dance or telepathy going to save us? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> so I, I, I think that it's not about one thing saving us. I think it's about uh, having the consciousness to recognize that there's more than what you see. And that brings hope, that brings inspiration, that brings um, a sense of wanting to wanting to make a difference because you feel like you can. Where if, if you look at the glass half full or half empty, I guess that is, um, half empty and you're, and you're looking at the doom and gloom, which is also a reality in the world, you know, mm -hmm. but if you focus on that, then you're not going to have the, the energy or let alone the passion to, to do anything. It's just surrender. You know? <laughs> and, and I think that that's, that's never moved humanity forward. And that's not the way of nature. Mm -hmm. Nature is about life and we are part of nature. We have to remember that. So the fact that we have imposed diseases upon ourselves, um, that can be reversed. Hmm. We just have to take the medicine and that taking the medicine um, is, there are a lot of different ways to do that. And I'm not here to say there's one way and I know that my path has been very, you know, sort of unique, certainly. <laughs> yeah. But I, in some ways, I feel like I'm a way shower um, for for people to consider. It, sometimes you taking a chance, believing in yourself, believing in something that um, hasn't been necessarily accepted or proven uh, may have may have a benefit you know as long as you're never hurting yourself or hurting anybody why not explore why not discover you know we pretty much just explored the whole continent and underwater and now in space and you know and there's still areas of certainly of exploration but what about just exploring consciousness and doing it in a way where you're not um, relying on Western science, i.e. pharmaceuticals. Why not go back to our original roots as humans on this planet and, and going back to the source to reconsider a future? Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with you there. You know, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think it's, you know, I, I work quite a bit with, with psychedelics of, of various kinds. And, you know, that is a potent way to, to explore consciousness, but it seems like every culture and sometimes even subculture or subgroup within a culture has their technology for exploring consciousness, you know, and it can be song, it can be dance, uh, it can be prayer, it can be fasting, you know, there's, there's a million ways to, to do it, but it's something that you know, I think when we get caught up in this sort of, well, 
we can call them scientific claims of like objective reality that come from those. So yeah, a few hundred years ago in Europe, you know, it was clear God had created everything, made all the rules, and the only way to access truth was to access God, right? And as science developed, you know, it started becoming clear that, well, maybe some of the things in the Bible were demonstrably false. And so we got this sort of division between the world, you know, people who adhere to scientific methods and people who adhere to, you know, spiritual methods. And I, I think for a lot of people, the sort of unfortunate result of that is that we've assumed that the spiritual technology was tied up with the heuristic technology, the idea of, of trying to figure out things about the objective world. You know, And I think for, for me personally, it's been a journey to sort of rediscover that, well, there, there is something incredibly valuable here. And, and even if I don't subscribe to the whole sort of religious picture, there are certain aspects of this experience that to me seem deeply valuable and and just essential to, to being a human um, yeah I definitely agree I, um I think just as you're as you're speaking you know it's to bring it to bring it into our listeners reality in a sense that's um more practical I guess exploration mm -hmm. is um because there's so many different religions. I've studied religions in college and I, even personally, I've, I, I can't tell you how many different um, paths of spirituality I've, I've explored. And at the end of the day, what I'm, what, what is really speaking to me um, is just each, each, I meditate in the morning and, or even if I'm doing a yoga practice, I'll set an intention and I'll just, and I'll say, you know, ancestors, spirit guides, God, you know, send me, um, you know, send me a, a sign. I just ask for signs every day in nature or in with synchronicities or things like that as confirmation for how, what, what step should I take at this moment to move me forward? Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's sort of like messages that I'm getting along the way. And it's just, it's remarkable. I mean, I think that every, every, if everyone just each day would even just journal something like that, then they would see the proof of the unseen world. So that the, you know, I, I mean, I definitely believe in prayer. Um, and I don't think it really matters, you know, what, what religion that comes from. I, I think it's all part of that spiritual intention of, wanting of, of reaching out to connect to again another dimension that you can explore um in in many different ways like you like you have been doing as you as you shared mm -hmm. yeah if your 15 or 16 year old self heard you say that what what would she think well actually i was doing it then Really? Okay. Yeah, I just didn't tell anybody. I would get <laughs> serious, and I would get shamed. I remember because I would, um, like, I'd give rocks as as presents for like for the holidays. Mm -hmm. And I remember my 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 mother saying, "That is terrible. You gave your your brother bought you this, and you just gave him a rock." But <laughs> I. <laughs> I was really understand, you know, I was tuned into something that 
obviously she wasn't yeah. <laughs> god bless her <laughs> yeah. and then I, so that's part of again why i learned to stop doing that mm -hmm. yeah because you grew up in i mean from what i could tell it's a very sort of middle of the road um you know standard american family very yeah middle class pennsylvania um yeah i did have a forest in my backyard one which was lovely um and yeah. i was always into horses which kept me grounded and connected um but i i always had another i always felt like i was sort of walking between two worlds yeah yeah and you i mean you said i don't know half jokingly or 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 not uh you attribute it all to a, a concussion when you were when you were six. What do you? <laughs> yes. What do you? What do you make of that? I mean, I think that's that's interesting because I mean, it seems like you could interpret that, uh, you know, multiple ways. One is like, uh, yeah, the there's a crack that that let the light in, as you said, and and sort of, um, you know, made it possible for you to see other things. Another could say, well, it's just like a, a neurological defect, and you know, this is all a fantasy. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of different ways I can imagine people interpreting it. Oh yeah. That's a good point. Well, all I, I didn't know, honestly, until about 10 years ago that I had fallen from a swing set on when I was six years old on my head. Um, I was with the indigenous people in Bhutan, the Mompa and the natural healer. He's the only healer Aptola. We, the tribal trust just published a book on his um, plant medicine knowledge in any event he he was he's also bone self-taught bone specialist so they're only 375 mopo i believe they predate buddhism and he literally was is the only bone doctor um delivering babies and self-taught medicine basically and then of course they have shamans and i and my group of this was many again about 10 years ago um or maybe not quite that long they they wanted him someone had, had been in a car accident so they had hurt their knee well so then he felt her knee and was able to tell her you know through a couple of interpreters what he thought and then another person had another injury so the whole group of all my all my donors ended up lining up and having him check their bones and and i've feel fine but being a, an equestrian definitely my lower back with age has started to hurt if i ride longer so he felt the the my lower spine and he told the interpreter when i was six years old and mind you i'm 67 when i was six years old i had an accident and it and it broke um it i guess broke whatever it affected my spine so i have a little curvature he said no doctor none of my i i've had really great medical doctors and no one has ever pointed that out to me before so then i went back to my mother was still alive i said do you know of any accident i might have had when i was six years old and she's like oh yeah and then she told me the story and then i i also you know put together the fact that I cannot remember anything of my childhood, even when I look at pictures before I was six years old. So I basically my memory is all in, in the only photographs that I have from that childhood. So that's the only thing that I can imagine. You know, I, I was thinking, well, maybe that's where that came from, that that being receptive to um, shamans you know from around the world who have a, a particular technology to reach 
um, to reach me. Mm -hmm. But then when I was then about two in 2013, I believe it was or 2014, I was invited to meditate with this in Santa Barbara with this major um, Hindu guru. And I agreed to do that because I was, you know, I was curious basically and meditating with him. I just broke out into a, a sweat. Uh, and when it was about a two hour meditation and afterwards there were only about six of us, I think. And afterwards I was not in my body. My, I, I, my sight, it was so uncomfortable. My eyesight was above my head. So hmm. I was like looking down, like I was probably, I felt like I was seven feet tall hmm. and I was so uncomfortable and I kept rubbing my lower spine to try to bring myself back into my body and nothing was working. I went to the guru and I told him, you know, I'm, I'm really uncomfortable. And he just had like a grin on his face. Like, honestly, I think he did this on purpose. <laughs> I think there was a reason he like, I don't know. I, I really don't know, but and anyway, I drove home. It was like Star Wars. I I was it, I was seeing all these lights flashing. It was very actually dangerous. Fortunately, I didn't have far to drive, and I was out of my body all night in my dream. And in the morning, I called in sick at work. I just knew that I had to get grounded. Mm -hmm. So I was just in my yard planting um, native plants, actually. And then afterwards, I was feeling better. You know, I felt like, okay, my, I'm looking out of my eyes again. And so I, I felt a comfort level, but it was, I was rolling up the hose after watering the plants. I flipped over backwards on a boulder on our property and, and split my head open. And it was like a, it was definitely a, dear, a near death experience. I was, I was gone. I was in this void hmm. and I was really, in a happy state though, because it was, um, is it called the acoustic records or whatever? Yeah. Anyway, I, I knew everything. I'm like, Oh my gosh. I said, so this is what they were talking about. This is fabulous. I knew I had all this, this knowledge in this altered state. And, but, and yet it was a little boring. It was just, everything was black. You know, I didn't see any objects or anything. I'm like, okay, <laughs> so I have all this knowledge, but what am I going to do with it? Yeah. And then a voice came to me and said, this happened for a reason. You're going to be okay. And then next thing I knew, I was back in my body and, and the hose was on my face. My dog was next to me and I opened my eyes and blood was pouring out of my head. So I was, wasn't able to talk. I was, you know, really stunned, but I was able to walk um, over to our an, our guest house where my husband had an office and show him that I needed to go to the ER immediately. So I, I was in the, you know, I had a CAT scan and all that. And fortunately I only needed to have staples in my head and, but I had a, a severe con, um, concussion and I, I had to just meditate that my doctor, my intern said, you can't, don't read, don't watch TV, just spend time in nature and rest and, um, and meditate. So I did that for two weeks and it became very clear to me that I needed to get back on track, that I needed to quit my day job and I needed to focus hundred percent on the work of the tribal trust foundation. 
because this is why I was told that this happened to me so that I would be, um, I was getting a little off my path by trying to juggle too many things and not live my true purpose. So after that concussion, then I just absolutely became much more receptive to um, messages from from indigenous peoples, from uh, nature, and I. So that yeah, I do believe that the concussion. When I referencing my late, more latest experience mm-hmm. with one that happened in childhood, I I absolutely believe that that probably happened for a reason too. I feel like it was probably on my life journey to um, as a stepping stone to be where I am today to do what I need to do for my piece of, um, you know, as part of humanity. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's such a a powerful story and, and an interesting one too, because it, it, you know, it combines personal truth with externally like verifiable truth in terms of like, this person could intuit like you had an accident at six and lo and behold, you did, you know, or, or you, you've told other stories of, you know, you, you see someone in a vision and then you go to, to meet that person and you have a conversation with them. They're like, yes, I did go and visit you. And we did have that conversation, you know? So there's, yeah, there's this, and you know, with, with near death experiences as well, this, the same way you describe the experience of, you know, seeing yourself from outside of your body and their, their stories, anecdotal stories, but stories of people who are able to identify, you know, the people who were in the room at the time, whether they're supposed to be unconscious and, and all of these things where it's, there's, there's a whole lot of, again, anecdotal evidence uh, suggesting that, yes, that we really are capable of accessing some source of, of knowledge or, or understanding beyond the realms of our physical body, you know? But then we, as we said before, you just instantly catapulted into this vast unknown of like, okay, well then what the hell's going on? <laughs> like what, yeah. what, is, what is reality then? You know, and, and no one has a good answer to that. Um, but I think it's interesting to, to just sit in that sort of middle ground and, and, and allow ourselves to, to wonder, you know, not, not, we don't have to jump to a, a conclusion, you know, but just say, well, this, this happened, this was my experience and, and really allowing ourselves to, to experiment everyone for themselves, you know, how, how, how deeply we can activate that that intelligence that way of being you know and see, see what it yeah life. i think it's more than just wondering and more than exploration i i feel like that's almost we can't afford to to be that self-centered right now again when i had that near-death experience and i had all this knowledge and consciousness that i you know i i, I seek in life the reality is, is that unless you're going to apply it, unless you're going to try to make the world a better place, then what's the point? Mm-hmm. You know, life is a gift. And I believe that everybody, everyone is born for a reason. And they're, and whether if you're born, you know, with, we're all born with challenges as well. You know, it's all relative, I guess, how, how you perceive the challenges, but I, I think that for me, at least, I guess I should speak for myself. I think that it's, it's the, there are different levels of taking action. One is, is certainly to just wake up and be aware and, and, and find your purpose and then take action on that. But then the other, I think equally important is to 
to share, to inspire other people so that, so that your purpose has a ripple effect. I, again, I have this sense and it comes from the indigenous peoples that more so than my own life, that, that, that there's a real urgency to, to what we're talking about. And, and it's not just about like the climate change or the politics of the world or, you know, all the different things that we can actually um, look at. I think it's just a, a sense of energy. It's not even time. It's like this, there's, there's an, a, I'm feeling a sense of momentum and the energy for all of us to, to really come together and, and and be all we can be mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think i think that's a i think that's a natural extension of this process of you know we can call awakening which is, i mean if you look just in, in in buddhist tradition you know there's there's sort of three main branches of, of meditation there's there's open awareness focused attention and compassion or, or, or loving intention you know and that's exactly those are sort of the, the essential pillars of, of being according to the Buddhist tradition and according to, I mean, I think in, in any sort of spiritual tradition, when you open yourself up to, to sort of beginning on this path, you eventually end up in a, in a place of, of compassion. But, but for me, when, you know, when you say make, make the world a better place, I mean, the more I think about it, it's like, what, you know, what, what does that mean? What does it mean to make the world a better place? How, how can I actually improve my life or help someone else to improve their life you know and, and to me i think it's a, it's a it's a very deep question and i i don't have a final answer by any means but it, it seems to me that a huge part of it is sharing exactly this like yeah we can talk about saving x number of lives or x number of species and, and try and sort of quantify things in a certain way but to me what what's personally compelling is you know how rich is a life and the more we can enrich our own lives the more capable we are of helping others to enrich theirs you know and i think that's that's true for you know people who who are living on the edge of starvation and people who are living in the lap of luxury it's it's like the the meaning of our external circumstances is always mediated through our interpretation of it and and the deeper our experience is in this this realm where you know we're calling spiritual the the deeper our experience of the ex, our external circumstances will be as well you know? mm-hmm. i also think though that um again i'm i'm basing this on my experience with um the requests of indigenous peoples mm-hmm. that definitely coming from a place of love over fear so we the tribal trust has historically just responded to the requests of indigenous people or hunter gatherers, as opposed to warrior type, you know, indigenous tribal people. Yeah. So, and, and that's, that's because they're the ones that are seeking our help. And I feel like that actually has a message for everybody too, though. I mean, you're, you know, you're a father. I think if you start with loving yourself and then loving your family, then loving your community and, and come from that place of love and sharing and wanting to, to help and support. That's how, how you make the difference. Mm-hmm. The other area that there that's highlighted um, with our organization and with me personally is education. So education when, you know, we're Western 
the two of us are, are coming from a Western culture. But the project that I'm so excited about right now with Asan Bushman, it's an indigenous-led pioneering educational model on education. And, the, and basically what they are requesting of the tribal trust is to have a curriculum that is indigenous-based, half of it is indigenous-based, mm-hmm. solid. So teaching hunting and gathering skills and their stories and language, et cetera. And then parallel, but not, not intermingled, is the Western. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're, because they are so different. One is so much, so much just of the mind, right? The Western. Mm-hmm. So I feel that that curriculum that they're suggesting, and this is that these are the Hunt C, the San Bushman, they, you know, they're the original people according to genetics <laughs> in the world um, that, that, that it's coming from them, I think is the model for the world. I mean, I'm seeing this like, so we're going to be supporting them and and creating this model in the Kalahari in Namibia. But I see this being, I mean, in, in my dream, it would be applied in the Western schools that we would incorporate Native American education, mm-hmm. you know, not just the history of Native Americans, you know, with colonization, but no, what all that, all their scientific knowledge, Native science being taught alongside of Western science. I mean, there's just so many possibilities. And Spirituality comes into play when it's an important aspect of indigenous knowledge, indigenous education. Mm-hmm. So then we wouldn't be having a, a separate conversation. It would be all embodied, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, how do you, or do you try and measure like if you have, different possible projects, you know, I mean, you've got projects in Bhutan, in Namibia, in Latin America, you know, at some point you have to make a decision. Do I put my energy here or there? My, my money, my, my time, like what rubric do you use to decide what is a worthwhile project? Has it, has it been successful? Like how, how do you try and quantify those things to, to guide yourself through these? Decisions. Yeah, that's a good question because the Travitals historically has been a volunteer organization uh, until last year we created a salary for the executive director because I'm looking at a succession plan. No one from the different people I've interviewed, young people to, to become the executive director of the tribal trust, they all need a salary. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I definitely could always use a salary, but I, you know, before the concussion, the latest concussion, I always had a day job mm-hmm. that, that, you know, paid my expenses so that I could continue to volunteer for the tribal trust. But now money has um, funding has become a factor and that, that definitely can drive where you focus your energy, but because the, the, the tribal trust again doesn't have an endowment. Basically, I'm writing grants for the various projects that my heart is is in, is def, directly engaged in. And it and right now it is the Sam Bushman, mm-hmm. but 
you know, with this education project, but how I've been able to strategically weave in the other countries, like the Zoom I had this morning um, with the Tariana Foundation in Bhutan, was to see how the project in Namibia could be scaled to include the Mompa in Bhutan, because their very first request to me, the shaman who you know, called me in 2014, Dorji, he, when, when I arrived in, with the Mompa in Bhutan, their request was to have their language taught in the boarding school there. Hmm. And even though this is a very small boarding school in the black, deep black forest of, um, of Namibia, where even the local, you know, people who are in the latest, closest town never went into because of the witch deity and, hmm. and, and other beliefs they they are conscious of the fact that their children need to be able to hold on to their language because their language is key to their plant medicines to their spirituality to their stories to we don't even know what it's mm -hmm. all it's all within their language and nobody knows their language other than the mulpa so I can same with the Sam Bushman, the, you know, this community, that's why they want their language preserved as well. So that's how I can see how um, if I'm, if I can focus, if I can get this project up and going and, I'm, and I believe it's happening, I mean, it is happening. We're already um, building the school in yeah. their village. So the children don't have to go outside of their village to study so they can have that transfer of knowledge before the elders pass away. Mm -hmm. I could see how then, then that model could be introduced with the Mulpa within a year. And then also I'm going to be in the Amazon in January and I'm going to ask the community there if they would be interested in, in this curriculum because the tribal trust has already helped fund the, the community building there, which is a cultural center hub. So we have those, those are the three communities that we've been working with um, primarily. During COVID, we did work with the Navajo Nation and what we were able um, through a grant, able to provide iPads, um, you know, technology for a senior class. But I also see how these, these remote schools could also be tech, technology hubs. And why can't they have Wi-Fi there? So that these kids, while they're learning their ancient and you know continuing to learn their ancient traditions they can also be connected globally so that they can share what they want to share with the world themselves so that it won't need the tribal trust you know to be the messenger between worlds that they would have that power themselves that would be you know a really beautiful achievement yeah yeah that's a it's a great vision and as you know, I'm I'm very gung ho about collaborating on that and supporting as as I can. I think it's a yeah. I know. I definitely really see project. how we could work together on that project. Yeah, yeah. It's exciting. Yeah, and I think it, it it really hits in on this this sort of dynamic or sometimes tension between I don't know what could be called preservation and and revitalization. You know, where I think from from the outside often. Um, there's a desire to, to yeah, want to preserve things so that they aren't lost. And that has a sense sometimes of making it sort of too stagnant. Like, you know, in, in, in Namibia, right. and there's, there's all these 
the, the what they call the living museums where people basically go and play act and pretend to be living in a village that that they don't live in you know and and it's this very like colonial williamsburg in virginia yeah 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 and it's it's so strange and surreal and i mean i think it's it's well intentioned but it's it's to me at least clearly not a way forward you know and it's like in in the reality we live in in order to preserve a culture that includes adaptation and includes change and it's, it's a matter of doing it in a way that reinforces the culture and makes the culture stronger rather than destroying it you know because there, there already is influence from the outside world you know they oh of course there's alcohol and there's evangelists and there's you know mining companies and they're they're not they're not living in eden you know and um no they're suffering actually yeah 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 but I, but i think even even so like with with this project of the of the school you know where it's it's like it requires it seems to me constant attention to you know, is, is this the right move? Is this the right way to do things? Is this going to be actually like just with, with the internet, you know, I mean, in, within the Western world, the, there's huge controversies about whether, whether or not kids should have access to the internet. And is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it destroying their minds? Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you, you take all of that and add on to it, the cultural dimensions. And it's like, okay, how do we do that wisely? How do we do that in a way that's going to be like strengthening their, their culture, you know? Well, and I think, I think the key is it's not about we, it's about them. So yeah. if it's an, if, if this, this is an indigenous led project. So if the sun want technology, which they do want mm -hmm. access to it, then I feel definitely it's, it's for them to decide, mm -hmm. you know, cause otherwise um, we're, we're deciding through funding are not funding their future and and that's the opposite of what you know what what the tribal trust wants to do we believe in indigenous wisdom mm -hmm. and we want to empower the indigenous people to make their own choices that i've the things that you're mentioning like certainly alcohol abuse um is something that was was introduced but that wasn't um that's not like like technology is a tool we're using technology it's a mm -hmm. form of communication and and the other is um i think not only is it is it just something that people suffer from from because a lack of hope right and purpose mm -hmm. if you can't if your whole tradition has been hunting and gathering and then you're not allowed to do that then what happens? I mean, you, you said you've been, you know, you, you were, you spent time in Tibet. Look at what happened there with the Chinese relocating all of the yak herders on the Tibetan plateau. It took 10 years for them to achieve that. Mm -hmm. And I was aware of that, that whole time. And it, it was, I kept thinking, what are they going to do when they relocate them into cinder block town? Um, what do you call them? Like skyscrapers pretty much. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and slaughtered their, their yak. Like then what happens without what happens to a culture? What happens to those people? Like their, their purpose, yeah. their way of being, there was no, I feel like if, if they, if they, it, it's almost like, um, um, like putting 
something in your backpack for survival. Technology can be that, you know, if, if every, if, if it's one, it's a tool, it can be a tool yeah. for the future. Yeah. Yeah. But so, so let me tell you a story. Cause I was, um, when I was in the Kalahari, I went to just, just recently, I was in, in a lot of different villages and talking with shamans and, you know, all, all kinds of different people. And in one of the villages, I was, I was talking to them about the possibility of, you know, bringing groups out there and how we could, could organize it and finances and all of that. And in this particular uh, village, uh, the shaman said, okay, we'll, we'll give, you know, when we do a dance, we'll give each of the dancers a hundred dollars and I'm going to get $5,000. <gasps> right. And, and for me, I just, I said, no, I'm, I'm not going to participate in that. Like if, if you want to do that, that that's fine, but I'm not going to dedicate my time and energy to basically recreating a feudal society. Because like in, in the U S that's, that's standard. Like the average CEO makes 500 times what, what the average janitor works in a different corporation where, right. where, where I live currently there's, there's um, in Basque country, there's a lot of uh, cooperatives here and their standard is seven times. So the highest paid person can only be paid seven times more than the lowest paid person. Wow. And, and that I see the effects of that, um, you know, on a, on a social level. And it's, it's incredible. It's, I mean, it's a great place to live. It's, it's not paradise, but that has a, a huge and noticeable effect in the quality of day-to-day -day life, you know, and even for people who aren't working in the cooperatives, it just sets the, the standard economically here. And, you know, you, you can go into any restaurant and you don't know, you know, who's the CEO and, and who's the janitor, you know, you look in the parking lot of the, of the factory and you don't, you don't know who has what position, right? Their income equality is, is a real thing here. And so I, I, I said that to him, I said, you know, look where I live, there's these cooperatives and they do things this way. And, you know, I'm not going to tell you exactly how, how you have to do it, but I, I just personally, I can't dedicate my time and energy to, to that kind of income inequality. Like I've seen what happens there and I don't, I don't think it's good. And we, we had a long conversation about it, but, but it was a, a thing where for me, it, I mean, you're right. I, I would love to say, no, like just give them power and let them decide. But I, in, in this particular context and in, in, in other ones, people have already been so exposed to bad models of, of development, of social structures, of economics and whatever. And I think, you know, th throughout the world, that's, that's often what happens is people, you know, in colonial societies, the, their model of power that they've seen is the colonial Lord. So as soon as they get power, they become a dictator. And you see that in Latin America all the time, you know, as, as soon as anyone comes to power, no matter how much they talk about anarchy or communism or egalitarianism, as soon as they have power, they turn into basically another colonial Lord, you know? And so, so I feel like there is a, a very uncomfortable and difficult, but, but sometimes necessary stance that at least I, as an outsider have to take of saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, yeah, I think, you know. I think the, the, a way of, of um, dealing with that situation, which is what the tribal trust has done, is, is honoring that indigenous peoples, they, they function on, traditionally on an economy of reciprocity. Mm -hmm. So money, it does not have to be involved other than, so again, for this model sort of, it has been successful for 25 years, what we've been doing, and that is, we will fund projects, we will fund a school, we will fund different things like that without mm -hmm. giving money to individuals ever. Mm -hmm. So Navajo Nation, we, we provided iPads. Mm -hmm. um, with, the, with the sun, we're building this school, we're going to provide teachers. 
definitely there'll be some, there'll be salaries for the teachers and that, you know, that, that involvement, but um, in reciprocity, then they gifted us with the trans dance healing, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I, I feel like there's a way to, to navigate that. And I'm, you know, on, on, um, on different situations, please reach out to me, you know, just to talk about it. Yeah. I might be able to give some, some, um, advice, but I, to- I totally support you not agreeing to that deal. Yeah. <laughs> that would be very toxic, very damaging. Yeah. 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 So the, uh, the, the indigenous principles are of the tribal trust. And I think there's something like 50 organizations that have sort of signed on to this, which is reciprocity, respect, responsibility, and relationships. Yes. Right. And that's sort of the, the guiding light. Values. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you, how do you see that playing out? Like with the, the project of the school, for example. So you, you explain the reciprocity part, the, how does respect, responsibility, how do relationships, how do they play into the, the development of that project? Well, if we, if we didn't have a, a trusted 25 year really, I have a, literally a 25 year relationship with this Noma community. There are about 75 um, people in the community. Mm-hmm. And we, we helped them 25 years ago, actually help save their lives at their request. That was when the medicine woman came to me in a meditation and called me there. Um, the documentation was sent to the United Nations and blocked the president of genocide of these people. So they, and I've been back only one other time before this last, this more recent trip in, in November. So it, even though I haven't, the tribal trust and I in particular have not been, you know, going back there every year and, and working with them. It's a trusted relationship. We, we show up when we're, when we're asked, you know, when we're called when, and that that's key for us to be able to have that relationship before not only they will they would ask of us this you know the request for this project but vice versa the mm-hmm. tribal trust is an organization as a board if we didn't have a relationship with the with um, this tribe then it would be very I think it'd be challenging for us to even raise money for the project and support yeah. it. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty key. And then um, the responsibility is understood that we have access to people and foundations and we, you know, our responsibility is to raise the money is how I see it. Mm-hmm. And to manage being the fiscal um, sponsors of, of this project for however long it takes for it to be, to get established. Mm-hmm. And it's their responsibility to, to follow through. I mean, with this curriculum, if it's in, if half the curriculum is about the, the indigenous, the, the tribe themselves teaching their culture, that's their responsibility to show mm-hmm. up and, and, and do what they say they want to do. And I no doubt they will be doing this. And I'm sure they're already doing it. It's just going to enhance that because the elders are, are passing away along with it, their knowledge. And of course, respect is key for respecting what they want to teach 
and they need to respect us for the effort that we're putting into this. Yeah. And when we have the researchers there who are going, we're, we're, we're the part of the model is we're going to have international two grant grantees showing up to be able to do research on conservation and climate change and various things, language possibly. They're going to be learning from the San Bushmen, but they're also going to be teaching the San teachers the Western mm -hmm. knowledge they need to be able to um, raise their education. There has to be respect among all people for their own, our own, you know, way of life. When I'm there, I need bottled water. You know, I, I need ABC, you know, I need to, I have different, different things that coming from a Western world that I need for my comfort level. And, and at the same time, I respect them for their, their needs and their way of being. Mm -hmm. So respect is key for harmony. Yeah. And I feel like we have all that going on you know, with this project. I mean, I, I know we do. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, again, that, that, um, that makes it easier for me to speak to other potential funders about this project, because those four values are in place. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that that provides a really nice counterpoint to, I mean, so in, in a lot of places you see, you know, water tanks that have been donated or schools that have been donated or, or whatever, when it, but when it's not part of an ongoing relationship, you know, it'll last however long it lasts, but as soon as something exactly. goes wrong, no one has the, the knowledge to fix it or necessarily the motivation, they definitely don't have the money to do so. So you see, you know, uh, brand new uh, water pumps that are run on, on diesel and, you know, no one has money to buy diesel. So they're just sitting there and, and rusting or giant water tanks that are empty because the cow's the antler, you know, or horn punctured a little hole in it and now you know the village is without water and and i guess that's when when we talk about not giving them money and giving them donations that was what came to my mind it's like oh god but so many people have been doing that you know the un and and the eu and people have been dumping money into these these places and because it's not part of an ongoing relationship of of reciprocity and respect then then those projects fail basically very good point yeah, yeah. And did the and and you again you always have to question, did they ask for that? Because it seems to me that many times um, indigenous peoples know what would be sustainable and mm -hmm. in, in solving an you know a, a problem or a need. Yeah. So I think it always comes back to that, you know, respecting their knowledge and their request and what it's based in. Mm -hmm except for $5,000 <laughs> when, when it crosses over into something that's not traditional, then, then values get skewed, you know? Yeah. yeah. You can't blame, I'm not blaming or judging. I'm just saying that I, you know, you don't want to necessarily support that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it can, it can definitely get tricky sometimes, but yeah, I guess I, I would just, um, want to be mindful of the time. Don't don't have a lot of time left. Um, yeah, thank you. What about what about love? How is that playing to things? Oh, that's a good question. Since um, recently divorced, because uh, honestly, the two men that I married, 
both were were lawyers, um, and I'm very very much attracted to intellect. I I, I like I just enjoy having um, interesting conversations with the people I love. Um, but both men ended up leaving. I left them because they were um, out of integrity with and not and not aligned with my purpose. Mm. And I. So love is, I, I, I hope that there's, you know, I'd love to be in love again romantically. In the meantime, I have three beautiful children and four beautiful grandchildren that I love. And I have strong, wonderful community. And I love my tribal trust board members. So I have a lot of love in my life. Um, so I, I, feel, I feel full of love, but um, there's always room for more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. What, what, tell me more about purpose. How does that, how's that plan to, to your life? I'm, I'm definitely purpose driven. And interestingly, that was used um, against me in my divorce <laughs> when there was, uh, which I ended up just surrendering and saying, just, you know, goodbye and it's, it's all good. But um, at the time I was uh, the, my, my um, ex-husband had, asked three people in defense, I guess, that, you know, what was going on with me and all three of them, what they said was, she is just all about living her purpose. <laughs> so in some way, I, I guess that was not, not good for our relationship. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I, and interestingly, I, but he, he, when he proposed, he said, I want to be the wind beneath your wings. And we were just friends for the first year. And he was, he ended up being uh, the president of the tribal trusted. So, so that's why I'm just, I know that I am to stay on purpose and it, and definitely my purpose is not, it's not your purpose. You know, our mm -hmm. missions are aligned, but everyone has their own unique purpose. So mm -hmm. I think that, you know, that, that could, in, you know, retrospect, that could have been a problem that, um, my purpose was possibly um, placed on somebody else too, you know, in, mm -hmm. without, yeah. without meaning. Yeah. yeah. But I believe. And how, <laughs> how, how is your process of like finding, refining, sticking with, updating all of that to, to your purpose? Like, is it something that just kind of came to you and it's like, okay, I know it, I'm going to stick with it. Or is it something you're sort of constantly sort of, mulling over and, and refining or what, what does that look like for you? Oh, I never think of it like that. I just, I just, every day I just, um, wake up and, and do what I do. I never really think about ref like changing or redirecting my purpose. I think mm -hmm. that, I think that it would be very limiting and conceptually to mm -hmm. think about modifying a purpose because my purpose, I feel, is only growing and expanding. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And and how did how did it first come to you then? Like, what what was that process like? For my well, I feel like honestly, I feel like I've always lived my purpose. I look back mm -hmm. on, um, and I it wasn't that I was always aware of it, but mm -hmm. I think that, again, I feel like everybody is born for a reason, for a purpose. I think it helps if you 
it certainly helped me, energized me and gave me more focus um, career-wise to be able to incorporate my purpose into my career. But Mm -hmm. I think that people's purpose isn't necessarily what you always do in the world. I think it's your beingness Mm -hmm. is your purpose. Mm -hmm. Like my, my dog here, (laughs) <laughs> as a purpose <laughs> yeah. and, it, and it's yeah. just in his beingness mm. 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 I like that I'll have to I'll have to let that one sink in but, yeah uh, I think in the western culture you know we we try to define it too much and and make it align with western values and then that that disregards um, a lot of people on the on the planet who who may not ever be able to realize certain things, you know, certain way of being mm-hmm. that we may be saying is more valuable than another way of being, more purposeful. Yeah. 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 And after this. We just lost the audio. So we'll leave it there for now. And uh, I hope you enjoyed it.